Welcome you, say good morning to you, and welcome you to Plainfield Bible, Bible, all caps, Bible Church. I just had to say that after the first hour this morning. We thank God for it. We believe it is God's Word. We believe He's pr- provided it for us. He's preserved it for us. It is His Word given to us by the, by the Spirit of God, and we come under its authority, and that's why we take it right now and we turn to the Gospel of John in the fifth chapter, if you would. And I didn't hear one amen for any of that, so please say it right now. Amen? (laughs) Well, later this week, Deborah and I will hit the trail again in a really familiar uh, route that we will take. And along the way in our, our drive... We have those places marked out where we stop. You do that when you go on a trip and it's a familiar place. And and when we get uh, up there to Peoria, we're going to be more than halfway there. And we will stop, stretch our legs. Uh, There's a big uh, farm and fleet tractor supply that Deborah loves to stop there and and walk around for a while, and then we'll gas up, and we'll hit the road again, and we get up there at, uh, when we hit 80, we know it's going to be a little while, we're going to see that sign that says, welcome to Iowa, and then a little farther down 80, we'll hit 61, go up north on 61, hit Dubuque, cross the river, and enter into the land of milk and honey and cheese curds. We will be there. But there are benchmarks along the way, as I've said. And what does that have to do with John chapter 5? We're at a benchmark right here in this particular chapter. We're going to see a change. And the change that we're going to see is just noting the fact, and I agree with G. Kendall Morgan, he says that we're more than halfway into, or more than the first year, and close, and, and close to the halfway mark in Jesus' three-year public ministry when we get to chapter 5. I know it's only chapter 5 in the book, but there's been the Galilean ministry back and forth from Jerusalem and so forth, and we're going to see that. And the change is described in this way. Somebody said, we're moving really from, from interest in Christ and reservation for him. Now, people want to flock to him. They want to find out. They want to see him do his thing, what they've heard. They've heard a lot about him. And prior to chapter 5, he's cleansed the temple and claimed some real authority over and some statements that have been very strong. But in chapter 5, there's something that triggers the change, and it's what we find out of the event that we'll look at this morning in this chapter, verses 1 through verse, we're going to make it through, Lord willing, through verse 18. And so the transition is somewhat described as reservation about him, to a full-blown hostility and rejection of him by the established religious authority of the day, the Pharisees, scribes, priests, many of the Levites. And this hostility is based upon the fact of Jesus exposing them and exposing the substitute for a faith relationship with God to a system of externals required by the people, and that becomes a great, great burden for the people. So there is a threat to the authority 
There's a threat concerning the things that he's doing and saying, and this particular event of chapter 5 makes a change with reference to, to all of that, particularly the, the next miracle that we're going to see in this particular section of God's Word. Now, if you don't know this, we're moving through these sign, major sign miracles in the Gospel of John. And we come on to the third one this morning in chapter 5. I did the first one of changing water to wine. Marshall did the other one at the end of chapter 4 last week and the word given to this man about the healing of his son. Somebody called my attention to this week. How come we're bouncing from miracle to miracle and we're not doing the whole book? Well, because we desired, we thought that that would be a good series to do. It doesn't mean you can't read the rest of the Gospel of John. Okay, so you go ahead and read through with us. And maybe we'll come back to key sections like this, uh, his high priestly prayer or whatever else. But that's how we're approaching it for, for right now. And I hope that that's going to be, I know it will be, because hopefully it will be in the Word of God and it will be of benefit to us and to you, I pray. Chapter 5, verse 1. After these things, what things? Back up in the context, verse 46 of chapter 4. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made water to wine. He's been in the area of Galilee now a second time, because we know he's already been to Jerusalem. So there's a lot that's gone on. But in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, After these things there was a feast of the Jews. And that feast brings him, and very likely, though the text doesn't say it, I'm certain his men are with him. There was a feast of the Jews. We're not told what it was. Some of the primary feasts, like Passover and Pentecost, all the male Jews of the nation were required to get there. But we're not told, so it's it's secondary to John's focus and what's going on in this particular event. But concerning this, and being a feast, Jesus goes up, And you remember, Jerusalem's elevated from everything else, so no matter where you're at, northeast, south, or west, you go to the city, you're going up in elevation. And verse 2 tells us, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, the word gate is inserted there, at least in my uh, translation, helpful for us, by the sheep gate a pool, body of water, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticles or porches. Now this sheep gate entrance into the city is in the northeast part of the city and it's actually the closest gate to the temple itself that has something to do with naming it. We can go clear back to Nehemiah and we can see that it was called the sheep sheep gate even at that particular time. And most understand, because of its location and closeness to the area of the temple, it's where many of the animals, like sheep, were brought through that particular gate to get to temple for the particular sacrifices. Uh, today, it's, it, it's near uh, what is the, uh, the uh, site of St. Anne's Church. And if you want to see this particular pool of Bethesda, you can find it, but you'll be just looking at a large hole of rocks and way down, of course, elevation to, uh, or I mean, depth of what would be because of all the layers of have been built concerning there. But you'll see water at the bottom of this. Not like we have to see the water to believe this, but it's there. And you can go to that particular site today, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, 
That word Beth at the beginning of us, the idea of the Hebrew word Beth, considers the idea of house, like Bethlehem is the house of bread, of where David makes reference to his, his particular city. Well, this is Beth, Beth Ezda, which is the idea or the Hebrew concept, is house of outpouring or the house of mercy because of what was supposed was taking place there. And at this particular location, it says five porches, and I will give you a, like a, an attempted drawing of this particular uh, location. And you would have five porches if you consider four sides and the particular area in the middle that are surrounding this pool, or two pools per se, of water in that area near the corner of the temple itself. The idea of porches would be a place for people to be able to sit or lie down, be some level of covering for them to be out of the shade. But the main thing here is this particular pool of water and what was uh, believed about that. And we're told, likewise, in verse 3, in these lay a multitude of those who were sick and blind, lame, and withered. The idea of that word sick has the idea, not getting the flu, but it's the idea of physical impotence. Withered or paralyzed. I don't know what your translation says, but that's the idea. And a multitude of people right there that are brought or sat, laid down, carried on a pallet. We're going to see however they would get there. And a multitude of people, when we try to imagine this, it has a tendency to, I would think, cause us to, our hearts to be broken, imagining the physical reality of so many of these people. And it reminds us of the fact that we live in a fallen world under the impact of the fall and the reality of human suffering in a fallen world. And you get a little taste of that from time to time. If you go to a care facility or you go to a hospital and you see the reality of what is true in our world and in true in the reality of some of our, our lives and physical things. But these people are just brought there and placed at this particular location. And when I think about all this suffering likewise, yesterday I met with some other men and we were studying the, uh, the concluding aspect of our salvation, past, present, and future. And in the reality of that we have experienced in our salvation, justification, past, uh, sanctification, present, and the final aspect of this is our glorification. And in the wonder of our glorification, we're going to be changed. And one of the graces of the glories of the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ is not only the fact that we have been forgiven of our sins and we are assured of a home in heaven, that is enough, but they were, we will also, in our glorification, experience a change into a glorified body and a healing and a health that is eternal. Can anybody say amen to that? And that's going to happen to us. And the older that you are, the louder the amen should have been. Right? And we have that in the gospel. The gospel is the hope of all of this. And the gospel comes to this. It is the Lord Jesus Christ in this particular event.
So verse 3, look at it with me. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, withered. Now, if you have the same translation version that I have, which is the New American Standard, I have the 95 version of that, which is my preference, okay? Then you will notice that there is some next texts that are wrapped in brackets. And if you have an ESV or a King James, look at verse 3 with me. It just goes, there were sick, blind, lame, and withered, and it goes right to, a man was there who had an ill for a number of years. Are you with me right now? And I thought I'd notice that, not to get bogged down in this per se, but here's the New American Standard of that. And it's read, I'm going to read it because the intent of this was a, just a scribal insertion that doesn't happen very often, and it's not what we call a textual variance. But it's the same thing that we do when I read back and I read sheep gate, that word gate is inserted for our help to understand what it's talking about. Well, it seems in a particular group of the copies of the originals of the Bible, and these are a little bit later copies or manuscript families, I even hate to use that word, but they held to the fact, or a scribe held to the fact, that you needed to understand what's going on here because we get over in verse 7, look there with me, in verse 7, and we read, the sick man answers him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. Well, what's that all about? Well, the point, the point of the scribal insertion there in verse 4, now look at it and I'll read it, okay, in the New American Standard, because you may not have it. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. And now he explains this for us. It is not in a lot of the families of copies, and many hold to the fact, again, this is not Scripture, but it's a scribal insertion to help us understand what was going on. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at a certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Wherever then first, after stirring up the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease which with which he was afflicted. Now, was that a true event, or was that uh, an event that was passed on and was more about superstition than it was reality? Well, I would agree with those who are pointing out the fact that this later assertion relates to something that was passed on and not necessarily an event that took regularly when this water would percolate a little bit or like a a spring that bubbles. And people would then get in there and an angel would come down and there would be a healing. my, My conviction is I don't think he's telling us something that actually happened. He's telling us something that was actually believed. And we're going to see it was believed by this man and probably all those people that are set there. And you say, well, maybe if it's just something that was passed on, why would they do that? Why, why would they believe that? Because these people are hopeless. They're hopeless. These people are like those people who go to a, a, a present-day healing service who really don't believe what's going on, but they are desperate. And they're hoping, maybe God, maybe this is true, maybe God is going to work, and maybe I will be healed. And we're going to see in verse Fifth, uh, excuse me, in verse 
5. Now we'll move on to that verse and unpass that stuff. And somebody tell me that that helped you. It didn't just totally confuse you. Did that help you? Thank you. Verse 5. And a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. 38 years, imagine. And he wants to get into this pool, but we're going to find out he needs somebody to get him there if he's going to be healed, so he is a cripple. In fact, Jesus is going to later, we're going to say that later, he's going to tell him to take up, take up his pallet. He's laid on a pallet, maybe the same pallet that he's carried there. I wonder how many years. I wonder how many days. I wonder how many weeks carried there, wishing God might heal him. How many other people believing this? Verse 5, man was there who had been ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him, so they're coming through the gate into this particular area and see this. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time ill or in that condition, why did he know that? Because this is Christ. This is the Son of God. And he knows everything about that man, and he knows everything about you and I. Every detail of our life. (laughs) And when we pray to that same God through the Lord Jesus Christ, our faithful high priest, he knows every concern of our heart, and he has died for us, and he loves us, and we are so privileged for him to truly know us, and yet invite us to draw near to him with humble hearts and bring every concern and every petition of our lives. What a good God that we have. What a loving God that we have that would invite us even to come to him, knowing all, all about us. So Jesus knows his condition. He knows all about him. He didn't see, see him to know that, but he's focused in on that man. He'd been there a long time, and he said to him, do you want to get well? Now, you might read that, and you think, uh, well, like, who wouldn't? right? It would seem to be um, the obvious thing that would be desired for this man. So you might glance at that and think, well, that's a bit obvious or a bit strange. But I want to remind you of something. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is all truth, never ever wasted a word. Everything he ever said was with intent and with purpose. Don't you wish you were like that? I can't get through the day without a wasted word. So then what is he doing here? Why would he say that? He's saying it because he wants this man's attention. Like he does with you every time we open up this book. He wants his focus. He wants this man to be sure, and what's going to happen here has absolutely nothing to do with a, with, with a fable, if I can call it that, an angel coming down and stirring the water. And if God wanted to do that, he could, couldn't he? But he wants this man's attention. And even when the man gives an answer, you kind of wonder if he really does have his attention right now. So do you wish to get well? Well, the sick man answered and said, Sir, I have, I have no man to put me into the pool and the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. D.A. Carson calls him a crotchety old man. (laughs) Well, if I'd been laying there for 38 years, I'd probably be even more crotchety than I already am. How about you? I don't know if he's a crotchety old man, but he's going on. I don't have anybody to help me. 
Somebody might bring him and leave him there. And then again, we don't know that anybody was healed in this particular manner, but he's there, and that's what, what was understood by many of the people. So, he wants this man's full attention. That's what I'm asserting. What's going to happen to this man is going to have nothing to do with the pool or with the water. And Jesus is going to put his omnipotence and his glory on display in what's going to happen. So he asks him this question. He responds with the fact that he doesn't have any hope with reference to this. And then in verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And in that little phrase, there are three imperatives. This is a threefold command. He's saying, get up, pick up, and walk. <laughs> wow. What's going to happen? Well, you know, but what's going to happen is going to be a display of power and of glory. Think about the man's circumstances. And when Jesus commands something to take place, this is God in flesh. This is God Almighty. This is the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. And so when he makes this statement... You get up, and by the way, he doesn't say, now if you have faith, in light of the first hour, amen? He doesn't say, if you have faith, or he doesn't say, if you will give a big offering at the temple. He just commands this. There's no evidence here of faith at all in any way, shape, or form. But he makes this command, and I want you to note verse 9, first word, and if you mark your Bible, underline it. What's the next word? immediately. Can you imagine his muscles, what they were like for 38 years? His feet, his body, sitting. Listen, I spend two days in bed and it takes me a while to get my legs back. How about you? <laughs> right? Young people, concerning the real superhero, it's not all the other ones that you get from Rocket Man or what's the guy with a suit? Huh? Yeah, all the other ones. Well, I'm here to tell you the real hero is Superman. And one of the guys that played Superman for, I think, three or four of the Superman movies, stay with me here, don't make fun of me, okay? Okay, was Christopher Reeves. And Christopher Reeves was a big guy, 6'4", over 200 pounds, very athletic he was a good, a good Superman. Now you know I'm talking, and there's no real Superman. Do you know that there's no real? Okay. You know that, right? But another reason I like him is because he liked horses, and he competed in equestrian. And on one of the competitions, he's going over a jump, or the horse stopped. I don't know the specifics of what happened, but he came off, and he fell on his neck, and he became a quadriplegic the rest of his life. And over years, you saw Christopher Reeves, and you saw a withered man. Think about this man. We take these miracles for granted. This is the Son of God, God in flesh. What happened? Immediately. In fact, 
I think even before the words came out, the miracle must have been done, because now he says, okay, get up. And there he is, whole. That's what's going to happen to us in our glorification. There's going to be something. So it's immediate. Power of God. This display of power is public, and word is going to spread even more about Jesus Although we're going to see later, it's one of those four times in the Gospel of John when it's not time. Remember what he said to Mary concerning the first miracle? He says, it's not yet my what? My hour. And so it's one of these times that he does something like this, but he slips away from the coming mob, so to speak. But immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. And mouths would have been open including his men, to see this again in his power. So imagine the instantaneous change in body and this sign miracle, instantaneous, total, not partial, no faith required or faith responded. Just Jesus showing who he is. Now, Remember I said this, this is a transition in the book? Because what is stated next continues all the way to the cross. And it's this. Look with me at the end of verse 9. Immediately the man became well, and he picked up his pallet and he began to walk. Now it was, everybody say it, it was what? It's the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. Here is the point of what John is going to convey to us or drive home to us. It's not necessarily this miracle. It's going to be what this brings about as a result of it. And it's going to initiate, it's going to initiate the open hostility that is against the Lord Jesus Christ by the leadership. Now the Pharisees and other of the leaders of the people were called protectors of the Sabbath. And as protectors of the Sabbath, they got together and the rabbis helped with this and what the rabbis later called, what they called a hedge around the Sabbath to protect it. And that hedge around the Sabbath to protect it was 39 categories. (laughs) Help me from above. Okay. Who? Everybody say, thank you, Lord. I'm, thank you, Lord. Is 39 categories of laws. Okay? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Exodus 20. Everybody with me? Remember the Sabbath. A gift given to the people. A gift from God of the Sabbath. They became protectors of the Sabbath, which meant, well, we've got to be careful and nobody does any what on the Sabbath? Does any work on the Sabbath? And so here's their 39 categories of different categories of laws that would indicate areas of work that the people could not do on the Sabbath. And I have this one up here for two reasons. Number one, you'll be, you'll be quizzed on it all next Sunday. And the second reason is, seriously now, at the over to the right and the bottom, notice what the last one is. It's caring. What do you tell this man to do? Pick up your... Pallet and what? Yeah, and walk. Caring. So immediately, notice, again from your text, 
was on the Sabbath. And then these, these 39 laws, all of them have to be explained and defined and developed for all of the people. So you come up with things like this. This is from Kent Hughes' commentary on the Gospel of Job. John, as he explains how these things were then developed category by category, and we could read on for the next five hours, but we won't do that. But let me just read this to you. You follow along. For example, looking in a mirror was forbidden. I'm glad you looked in one this morning before you came, but looking in a mirror was forbidden. The rationale was that if you looked into a mirror on the Sabbath day and you saw gray hair, you might be tempted to pull it out and thus performing what? Everybody say it. Performing what? Work on the Sabbath. You also could not wear your false teeth because if they fell out, you would have to pick them up and thus you would be performing. Everybody say it. Work. All kinds of obscure meanings and conversations centered around the Sabbath. You could not carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath, but you could wear one. That meant if you were upstairs and wanted to take, take a, a handkerchief downstairs, you would have to tie it around your neck, walk downstairs and untie it. The Jews even debated about what a man with a wooden leg, namely if he if, he, if his home caught, caught on fire, could he carry his wooden leg out of the house on the Sabbath? You could spit on the Sabbath, but you had to be careful where you spit. If you spit on the dirt and then scuffed it up with your sandal, you would be cultivating the soil, and everybody say it, and thus performing what? Spirituality then could be determined by where you spit. You say, that's crazy. No, it's how bad it was. How bad it was on the Sabbath. So what is Jesus going to do? He's going to say, you know what? I'm Lord over this thing. I own it. I'm the one who makes the rules concerning it, not you. Jews have turned this blessing of the Sabbath into an unbearable burden upon the people. And he is now exposing then in these next verses, exposing and confronting the legalistic system that is spiritually bankrupt for the people. Where did that leave the people? The, the, the same old problem, just another package of it. It leads them trying to do the best they can of works and seeking to work their way into God's heaven. Into a system. System versus a savior. Law and the law is good, but the laws they developed was not good. Laws versus grace. The shadow versus the substance in the Lord Jesus Christ. A religious system without, with a, a focus upon externals, superficial, spiritually bankrupt in itself. And I want to take just a moment to, to, to talk about where that left the people mainly left them as an a, a impossible substitute for a faith relationship with God. But this is the epitome of legalism and the greatest example of it in, with reference to the people. So it left the people with an unbearable, miserable burden. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not and not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, he said that, that's recorded from Mark, but here's the point. Jesus is going to take authority over this. And when he says that he's Lord over the Sabbath, well, who gave the Sabbath to the people? It was God. So what is he claiming? I'm God. I am God. 
Isaiah, what they missed was how Isaiah says, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away, apart from a faith relationship with the living God. And in the midst of all of this, of this tremendous burden upon the people, they tie up heavy, what's the next word? Say it with me. They heavy, heavy what? Heavy burdens upon the people. And they, and they lay them on men's shoulders, and they themselves are unwilling to even move with so much a finger concerning it. And Jesus is going to nail them for the fact that not only do you put this burden upon the people, but you tell them what to do, and you don't even do it yourself. All end up being locked into a miserable burden. No wonder, now you have to read this one with me. No wonder Jesus says this. Come unto me, all you who are, everybody say it, are what? Of what? Of what? All this burden of the law constantly. And the the keepers, the protectors of the law, watching and looking for anything of how you're not righteous. What a burden that they had. And then he says, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humming her, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Not that Jesus doesn't demand for us obedience, but the, the beauty and rest of his yoke is that it flows out of love for him rather than a system of trying to be good enough to work your way into heaven. I would also have you note, oh my, not yet. I'd also have you note it was a system where rules mattered more than people, and that's what legalism does. Let me say that again. It was a system where rules mattered more than people. Look at verse 10. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry a pallet. You'd have thought they might have said, oh, wait a minute, where, where are you going? What are you doing? What happened? Anything. No, they knew one thing. Beloved, here's spiritual blindness right here. Only one thing. You are breaking the what? You're breaking the law. You're breaking the law. Where rules matter more than people. Third, it produced among the people, uh, uh, the leadership in, in particular, a hypocritical, professional bunch of sliver pickers. Matthew 7. Going around finding what's wrong with others in order to make themselves look holy. We can be that way. We can do that. Finding fault. But most of all, and I would say put an X by this one, just these four, unbearable burden, a system where rules mattered more than people, and hypocritical professional sliver pickers who were not at all sincere in their own hearts about what they were doing. But number four, it produces a life without real authentic joy. And the only place you're going to find real and authentic joy is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Only way to have real joy. There is no joy found in a system of rules. But there is joy found in being cleansed in your heart from your sin and changed in your life with the assurance of having eternal life 
in the God of heaven. System of rules, externals, can't do that. Joy comes with a new heart that comes to sinners by repenting of your my sin and in faith trusting what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And all of that then provides a new birth, it provides a new heart, it provides a new life, and it provides a new joy. But the people were weighed down with incredible burden. So it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet on the Sabbath. Verse 11, but he answered them, that is the man that was healed. They came to him, they find him. He who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. In effect saying, well, I didn't do it. <laughs> this, this, somebody else did this. You'd have thought maybe he'd have said, hallelujah. <laughs> Look what's happened to me. Can't explain it, but wow, something else. But no, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. Well, they asked him then, verse 12, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? Who is he? Who is he? Where is he? We want to talk to him, right? Verse 13, but the man was healed, did not know who it was, and for Jesus had slipped away while there, while there was a crowd in that place. So they want to know. He's not sure who's done it. Jesus slips away. He does that several times, we'll see in the Gospel of John or in your reading. Now, verse 14, notice. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. How about that? Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple, and he said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Wow. In fact, verse 14, the tense here when he says, Do not sin anymore is in what we call a present active imperative. It could be read this way, stop continuing to sin. Or stop continuing in your sin as this characterized your life. What a warning that goes on here. Now we know, don't we? We know that the Bible does not teach, it doesn't teach us that every illness or every suffering in people's lives, particularly believers, is related to deliberate disobedience and sin. That every time we suffer, we've done The Bible doesn't teach that. Job's three friends were friends, but they were flat out wrong, were they not? We have a, a great reminder of the fact that not all suffering is related to sin, although sin always has its price tag, doesn't it? Turn with me over to John chapter 9. And we have, I don't know which one of us are going to cover this, but it's one that we're going to cover of the man who was born blind. And notice what our Bible says. Just to back up with the Scriptures, what I'm saying here, 
We're not. Every time we suffer or people suffering or bad things happen, it means that you're doing something wrong. In fact, there's going to be times in your life something difficult is going to happen and you're doing something right. And God is saying to you, you've been growing and now I'm going to give you another test that's going to develop more faith in your life. And you're going to learn more about what it means to trust me when you're hurting or when you're in difficult circumstances or when somebody you love is hurting. So it's not that you've always done something wrong. Maybe that you've done something right. And God says, I'm going to get glory from the way that you respond. Look at chapter 9. If you're there, say amen. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his, his disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Somebody did something wrong. That's why he's suffering. Jesus answered, verse 3, it was neither this man's sin nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And that's what's going on right back here. But there's a flip side of that. And the flip side of it is that the Bible does teach that some illness or some suffering can be related to sin and disobedience. If you're not sure of that, just reread your Old Testament and see how often the nation of Israel rebelled against God and how often they suffered for it. Or study the life of David, right? Man after God's own heart, but committed adultery and murder. And you read Psalm 32 and he says, My sin was ever before me and all the consequences of it. So what is Jesus doing here? Out of love. Out of love. In fact, I think he's calling him to repentance. Stop. Realize what happened to you. Who did this? Look at it again. You have become, well, don't sin anymore. Stop it. So that nothing worse will happen to you. I think his life, his physical part of him was changed. But was his heart changed? Well, verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, at a glance, that sounds like good news. But is it good news in the context? Because why why would he tell the Jews? Well, the Jews are looking for him. Are they looking for Jesus so they can say, thank you? No. In fact, look at verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting. Here's another tense, and we're going to see that in the next verses. They were continuing to pursue him, to get after him, to get him. And this man went away. He told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Can I say it in old-fashioned terminology? You know what he's doing here? He's saving his own bacon. He's saying, well, you want me. I'm, not, I'm breaking the law. It was Jesus. I don't think his heart has been changed at all. And you say, well, Pastor, I don't believe that. Well, then you just go ahead and argue with R.C. Sproul. (laughs) Listen to what he says. Jesus already healed this man of a 38-year malady. Here he gave him an excellent piece of advice. How did the man repay the kindness from Jesus? The man departed and told the Jews it was Jesus who made him well. What a marked contrast there was between this man and so many others who encountered the living Christ. 
most of them, having felt Jesus' touch, having received blessings from his hand, would have crawled over glass to bear witness to him and their Lord. But this man, who received the physical blessing of healing, apparently never went past the physical to saving faith. And you say, well, that's really rare. No, it's not. What about the ten lepers? How many came back? They were all healed of their leprosy. How many came back to give thanks? One. He's in that category. You're still not convinced, so I'm going to bring more heat to you from John MacArthur, okay? Let's read this good quote. Not that these are apostles, but I think their quotes are very helpful. And they both agree with me, so I know they're right. Okay? Forgive me for that, Lord. Let's read the quote. This has to be one of the greatest acts of ingratitude and obstinate unbelief in Scripture. He did not intend to praise or worship Jesus for healing him since the Jews had already manifested open hostility toward him, toward Jesus. It would have been incredible, incredibly naive to think they would, not, they would now react positively. He further aided their hostility by identifying Jesus. More likely, the man's actions were further attempted to defend himself for breaking the Sabbath regulations. He could now answer the authorities' question of verse 12 by naming Jesus. It was him. So what's taking place now? Verse 16, this relates to Jesus slipping away from the crowd. But isn't it amazing he would then find this man after he healed him? There's something better than physical healing, isn't there? And he would go after him again and warn him to turn from his sin. That's repentance, isn't it? Have you repented and believed? Necessary to our belief. We've turned from and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And he answered them. And really, the extended answer to that is verse 19 through verse 47 in the rest of the chapter because it introduces us to this discourse where Jesus is showing them the reality of who he is and their spiritual blindness. But notice verse 17, but he answered them, my father, my father is working until now and I myself am working. What? Your father? Verse 18 Then he gives us this interpretation statement and prepares us for those next verses that we don't come to. But verse 18, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And it leads us into the tension of the rest of the book all the way to the cross, the hostility of the Jews based upon two truths. Number one, breaking the Sabbath. Number two, claiming to be equal with God. So, John's gospel, we call it what? The gospel of belief. Ninety-some times in John's gospel, look to him, look to Jesus Christ, and believe. But what we have in this particular incredible display of his power and authority, we have unbelief. We have unbelief. Healing the crippled man puts Jesus on display as God, the Son. You might be tempted 
to say, how could those Jews have been so blind to who Jesus was? And over and over again, what's it take? Or you might be tempted to say with this guy, how could he be crippled for 38 years and be healed and not be grateful? Unbelievable. But the real question isn't the Jews, and the real question isn't this man. The real question is you. What about you? Have you believed upon him? Have you turned from your sin and to Christ? And you can say today, yep, I believe that he is who he claimed to be. He is God in flesh. He's the one who died on the cross for my sin and my place. And he's my Savior. And today he's the basis of my hope. They may, but I read this and I believe that Jesus is the one he claims to be, God in flesh and Savior. And are you, as you are overwhelmed with the reality of what you see about Christ, then what about you? Are you grateful for what he's done in your life? Has he changed your life? Is he changing your life? Because he started to work. And he's still working in your heart and in your life. Are you grateful? Are you grateful? Hmm. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that what? Saved a wretch like I once was, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Here's one of the verses of Newton's amazing grace. We don't often sing it, but we could. Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. Not by law, not by rules, not by works, not by religious activity, not by church membership, not by baptism, not by anything else other than amazing grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Can you say amen to that? Let's thank God for, us, for what he's done in Christ. Bow with me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, I find it so easily, so easy, easily to, to look at this event and say, how could, how could people care more about rules than people? How could you be so blind? Yet there may be somebody here today that is trusting in something other than Christ and what he's done. And I ask that you might bring conviction and repentance and faith. He said, come unto me who are weary and heavy laden. And that's what sin does to us. And that's what rules do not, do, do not bring relief. So there be someone here today say, I, Christ, I've, I, I can't really say that I've really, truly believed upon him. And, I, and nothing in my hand I bring. In other words, nothing I'm trusting in other than Jesus. And if that's you today, please let us know that we can rejoice with you. Thank you for the promises of the Word of God Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Thank you for that. Thank you for displaying your Son in your Word 
and we can be strengthened by who this Christ is and the one to whom we pray. And we give you all glory for it because of your greatness. And we pray this in Christ's name. And as people would say, amen.